A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 208 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Hurlman, and with me like a big basilic that's looking out for the good of the company, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, everyone. Everyone, it's that time of year again. Tomorrow, as of the time we're recording this, we get to vote the completely corrupt pathological liar into office. But will it be from the right or the left? <laughs> we'll see. Oh God. Yeah. The uh, uh, the political junkie in me is kind of on. It, 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 I feel like I'm strung out right now. Just like, uh, <laughs> can we be done, bro? Can't you, you guys got any like? Any kind of placebo or something, so I feel like I'm getting my politics as I can't do this anymore, man. I think that's like the same feeling of the rest of social media out there, but it's interesting that that those of you that actually dig politics are like, okay, tapping out, tapping out, we're done. (laughs) And me, I'm I'm still recovering from uh, weekends and weekends of haunted house action and being the creepy uh, Joker-like guy in the hallway going, you're not going the right way. So yeah, I'm still really rough. The funny thing is, those are two. There's actually two separate things. There's the haunted house, and there's being the creepy guy that looks like the Joker in the hallway saying stuff like that. <laughs> he just happens to do them at the same time of year. True. This is very true. Oh yes, indeed. Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we turn to Alex Freed's Star Wars Battlefront Twilight Company. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Among the stars and across the vast expanses of space, the galactic civil war rages. On the battlefields of multiple worlds in the mid-rim, legions of ruthless stormtroopers, bent on crushing resistance to the Empire wherever it arises, are waging close and brutal combat against an armada of freedom fighters. In the streets and in the alleys of ravaged cities, the frontline forces of the Rebel Alliance are taking the fight to the enemy, pushing deeper into Imperial territory and grappling with the savage, flesh-and-blood realities of war. On the ground, leading the charge of the soldiers, men, women, and human and non-human of the 61st Mobile Infantry, better known as Twilight Company. Hard-bitten, war-weary, and ferociously loyal to one another, the members of this renegade outfit doggedly survive where others perish, and defiance is their most powerful weapon against the deadliest odds. When orders come down for the rebels to fall back in the face of superior opposition numbers and firepower, Twilight reluctantly complies. Then an unlikely ally radically changes the strategic equation and gives the Alliance's hardest fighting warriors a crucial chance to turn retreat into resurgence. Orders or not, alone and outgunned but unbowed, Twilight Company locks, loads, and prepares to make the boldest maneuver, trading down and dirty battle in the trenches for a game-changing strike at the ultimate target. The very heart of the Empire's military machine. Yeah, this one is, it's an odd one. Uh, I feel like my opinions over this one have sort of shifted over time, and I'm still not quite sure where I land on it, so it should be an interesting episode for me to figure out what the heck I'm thinking. But it's weird in that this is, you know, Star Wars Battlefront Twilight Company, not just Twilight Company. This is a tie-in novel to the game. When it comes to Star Wars and video game tie-in novels, though, you usually have three different approaches they can take. And you can sort of see that with The Force Unleashed, The Force Unleashed 2, and Ruins of Dantooine. Hey, didn't say all the examples were good ones. (laughs) But you have something like 
The Force Unleashed 1, where basically the novel is just a run-through of the game. It might as well be just a glorified walkthrough from a strategy guide without really adding a whole lot to it. Or you get something like The Force Unleashed 2, where yes, it follows the game, but it's also adding nuances here and there with characters, maybe giving us scenes we didn't see in the game, different perspectives we didn't see in the game, uh, like the way The Force Unleashed 2 had stuff happening on Dak slash Mon Calamari slash Mon Cala that we hadn't seen within the game. Or you have something like Ruins of Dantooine, which is sort of a, well, this game is so broad that it's more like a setting than a set storyline in many ways, in that case for Star Wars Galaxies. So what we're going to do is we're going to use some of those settings and the idea of sort of general character classes and give you an original story that touches on certain things that will be familiar from the game, but which in and of themselves aren't showing the game. And this takes somewhat of a different tack by default, because Battlefront as a game has no story. There is nothing story-related in Battlefront, and that's one of the biggest complaints people have had against that game. Not just that it doesn't have a campaign mode, it has no story. If there is a story to Battlefront, it is you are a rebel or an imperial, you are fighting against the other side, and you're going to die a lot. You are constantly a nameless, faceless, personality bereft character getting killed over and over again while killing people over and over again and it's all just about the life and death numbers and your kill to death ratio it is a completely impersonal experience and in a sense that seems to be where this novel jumps off it has to grab something from battlefront and it seems to be that whole nameless faceless soldier thing uh, death in large numbers and taking it into the real life scenario of sort of uh, the casualties of war. So what we get is a story that is much darker and grittier than we usually see with Star Wars. Perhaps even darker than something like Shatterpoint. Remember, Star Wars avoided the darker stories up until about 1999. Then you get New Jedi Order and it starts to get somewhat dark. Then you get some of the Clone Wars stuff starting in 2002 that gets really dark before yeah. the cartoon comes around. And now we've got this. And there's no Jedi... Uh, there's just Vader appears in it briefly, but no Jedi. It, in a lot of ways, you could sort of take out the spaceships and make them troop transports on the ground, and it would feel like a modern-day military-type story. You take out the names of things like the Empire. It could be any gritty Starship Troopers-esque space military combat scenario. So we have a story that's very focused on just the meat grinder. Just how harsh it is, how unrelentingly dark and depressing it can be, how you try to find victories in small doses when bigger victories aren't possible and so on. And in that sense, it really gets the atmosphere across extremely well, especially for this being Alexander Freed's first novel and having seen him writing for stuff like uh, the Imperial Agent story from the Old Republic and Old Republic Blood of an Empire and the Lost Sons, which I was not super thrilled with. That said, there's basically really only two or three characters that get much in the way of characterization. So we see the war through their eyes, and their story is interesting, but pretty much everyone else doesn't get enough characterization for us to care. So I don't know if he's been successful here. You've got a story in which it is the meat grinder. Lots of people dying, and a lot of times dying just out of nowhere because that's just war. And in that sense, wow. I feel kind of numb to it because it's just the meat grinder. And maybe that's the point, that war is just a numbing thing, a very impersonal thing, and it just kills and kills, but we don't necessarily feel it until it's someone close. Or he may be meaning for certain character deaths and moments to really be a huge impact on us emotionally because they are named characters that we've seen for the rest of the book, and now they're gone. If he was aiming for that second one, though, he doesn't characterize the characters enough for me to give a damn when any of them die. There are only a couple of characters I would have given a crap about if they died, and their circumstances by the end of the book, while tragic at times, don't leave me going, oh god, I can't believe it! I got more of an emotional punch out of Lost Stars and Dark Disciple than I did here. So, is it a success? Depends on what he was going for. Is it a good book? It's different, and I think the journey is worthwhile to see a different angle on Star Wars, but... I don't know if this is one that's going to be for everybody, and I don't know if after seeing Rogue One and its version of dark Star Wars military storytelling, you're going to need to read this book to get that out of Star Wars anymore. Ooh, that's a good point with Rogue One. I hadn't thought about that. 
Uh, for me, I really enjoyed this one. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the potential that came from this book. I think this book could have easily been a first installment of a series like Race Squadron or Rogue Squadron. I'd love to see a more story mode, uh, you know, like what we had with Battlefront 2, where we are with Twilight Company. Or maybe we're actually Namir or maybe Gadron, you know, or something like that. Or some more Twilight Company stories. I think that's the thing about this that really got me excited was the potential for following Twilight Company farther into the canon universe. You know, I, I like the idea of a ground force version of Rogue and Race Squadron stories of legends. Um, I thought that was a really interesting twist. I did not care so much for the time jumps that they used to introduce one of the main characters in a roundabout kind of way. Uh, it, it did, you know, I, I've reread and re-listened to this one probably the most, and I have no idea why. I just kept coming back to it, like when I had nothing else to do. Uh, the audiobook, it's narrated by Jonathan Davis, uh, but I really like the way that, that Jonathan Davis did the characters. Namir, uh, you know, Roach, Ajax, uh, Gadron, the way he did the voices really brought them to life to me. And, and I agree with you, Nate, that, that the book itself doesn't give a lot to the characters, but I think that Jonathan Davis, by, by giving accents and, and tones to each character, it gave me the depth that, that maybe you were missing. Cause I really enjoyed the side characters and stuff. There were a lot of characters that all had names that were easy to read uh they all sounded cool they weren't extra exotic to prove that they you know were part of star wars you have names like ajax barcel beak brand carver uh every chalice uh micah vaughn who was general Howe. uh we got fectron we've got gadron we've got von geese we've got hober we've got crovis uh kendrel we've got naz nazrum namir uh and then nub made a reappearance in this we have roach roja sargon we've got tabar we got twitch we got verge which was a really weird bad guy he kind of had a state pistage kind of feel to him uh, just really odd kind of guy almost got a gallius rex feel from the character which when i read this i didn't know who gallius rex was you know it wasn't until after i'd read life debt that i came back and i was like oh dude this guy has a kind of like a you know a second order feel like maybe palpatine's trying to get young kids to be like the the, the third reich or something like i don't know like there was some really cool aspects to the characters and Ivalish. uh how do you say her name? Ivari Chalice? Yes, yes. She was an interesting character that the way they introduced her, interjected her into the story, and the way her plot tied them and everyone in Twilight Company to major events from the saga. I really enjoyed that. And I think the thing I enjoyed the most was being on Hoth itself. When we see the key moments of the films in the new life, we understand the true blow the Empire dealt the rebellion on Hoth. And I think it was really cool because we see it from the ground trippers point of view. They are completely scrambling. They are leaderless. You know, in the films, we watch one of the main leaders, Leia, take off and get to safety and do her own thing through, you know, the course of events. But we really get no idea what it was like for Wedge or, you know, the rest of the troops that were left behind. And this really gives us that. That was a really cool way of tying that in that I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's much more of a situational thing. Like, Hazram Namir becomes sort of our focal character. And then you've got the whole plot going on with Iveri Chalice. We have another focal character that gets introduced, uh, Thara Nayende, who is a stormtrooper woman on Sullis. So giving us that diversity amongst the stormtrooper ranks, which is something sorely needed because they've talked about it before but haven't really done a whole lot with it. So we get like a, an imperial perspective or an imperial sort of seeing what they're doing from the inside and how they feel about the rebels as terrorists and some of the actions that they're taking and whatnot. Uh, we get to see the Imperials who are chasing them. And again, we get these these moments where, I guess, sort of the strength and yet sort of the weakness of the way that it's written is that a lot of times the changes that happen don't feel like they're within our character's control. So, like, for instance, there's a point at which they're on Hoth during The Empire Strikes Back, or at least a few of the characters are. What happens there has little to nothing to do with them, but they're caught in the middle of it it, it deeply affects them, and they move on to the next thing. And you know that Vader and the, the rebel leadership, you know, that we see in the film, the, you know, the big three, they have no idea what's just happened to the members of Twilight Company. It's not even within their scope of, of perception. But it's still affecting them. So sort of the idea of what happens when, you know, the big people who are always in the media, the leaders that we know and can name, when they're doing their thing, what happens to the people on the ground? What happens to the little guys? Uh, but then you also have instances, for instance, where a character might die 
or a ship might crash or whatever in a very, not really unexpected way, but something that fits the story, but it just kind of happens. And as a storyteller, you tend to look at for plot beats and where the story needs to go to move along, and you try to make sure that each one flows in a logical fashion. It's almost like in a couple of instances in this book, it's purposely not in a fully logical fashion. Like, yes, they are vulnerable, but in a traditional story, you wouldn't expect something crazy bad to happen here. But no, we're going to kill a bunch of people because that's just war. Which, again, makes for a different feel of a book than what you're used to. I would say if you're looking for something that is, uh, well, let's see, how did I put it uh, on when I did the review of this way back when on StarWarsReport.com? I mean, if you're looking for something that has heavy ties into the continuity that is meaningful, this really isn't it, unless the meaningful thing is the fact that we do see the liberation of uh, Sullust within the book. If you're looking for one that's more high-flying adventure in the spirit of Star Wars fantasy and such, that isn't it. This is much more of the meat grinder military story with a Star Wars skin over top of it. <laughs> that, again, it's, it's an interesting read because it is so different. And some people may get really into it, especially those who have relatives who've been in war, because it does help kind of give you a perspective on war and does it in a sci-fi Star Wars frame. So it's getting rid of the real-life politics of, well, should we have gone into Iraq? Should we have gone into Iraq? Kind of stuff. And it's just sort of a this is what war is like type of thing. But there's no way this is going to be a book for everybody. And I can see why, as it seems to be, there is such division in fandom over this book. Not contentious division like they're arguing about it. It's just people seem to have either really enjoyed this book or really hated it. And it all tends to come back to tone and was this what we expect in a Star Wars book? And it isn't what we expect in a Star Wars book, which is either its strength or its weakness. No, and you're right. You know, I hadn't thought about that. There are very few people I've come across that are like, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's either one or the other. You either really liked it or you really didn't care for it. Uh, and I think, you know, something you said that really strikes me is, you know, probably won't see these characters elsewhere. I feel that that's the real crime of our new canon is they set up books like this. They get you involved with some of these characters and then we just move on. I mean, here's an opportunity, like I said, you could have a, a race squadron style series of books based on these characters, and in the end, we're making this another Tales of, Tales of the New Republic military, characters that we're not going to care about because we don't come back to them, and I think that's the real crime here. There, There's a good opportunity to run with this and tell a story that I kind of feel like we need to have told. I mean, we still don't exactly know what's going on with the New Republic military while all the chaos is going on between things. You know, we've seen the political side of what's going on, how Mon Mothma wants to disable the military, kind of cut it back, and those that's so forth. We see the First Order being built, but we don't really get this on-the-ground point of view, and I think that, you know, they could use that to tell other stories down the road. I mean, there was a moment where the Thunderstrike gets crippled, right? That scene had a certain helplessness to it that ramped up the intensity for me. I was like, during that scene, I thought, oh man, this is it. This is, this is like, th this can't get any worse. And they kept pushing things forward. Like, I really got a kick out of that. Now, I want to ask you, Nate, a question here, that one that I've been pondering. Could this book have worked as a story mode in the game? Because, you know, like you said, we didn't get a story mode. And while I'm reading this, I kept feeling like, you know, this should have been part of the game in some form or fashion. Do you think maybe if they'd have done just the Solstice or maybe just the Hoth, you know, chapter as a level, would that have worked as a story mode? Or maybe just take key battles and give us a story mode where we're just following briefly like Gadrin, for example? I think so to some degree. And that may be owing to the fact that Freed worked for Bioware for so long and was doing writing for the Old Republic. If you had taken this and... What was happening with A Very Chalice became like what you saw in the cutscenes and whatnot. And you get to play perhaps as Hazram as he was uh, going through the different missions and you had these other members of the team beside you. Um, in a lot of ways, it has a very Call of Duty feel to it in both the good and the bad way in that here's those big set piece moments. Here's a whole lot of meat grinder type action where you're just killing a bunch of cannon fodder and people around you who are cannon fodder are falling and so on. And really only your character and maybe some of the characters seen in the cutscenes get any depth. The people around you, even those that are part of your team that you may be controlling with squad commands and stuff like that, you really never get to know enough to give a crap when and if they die. And, and sort of a, to some extent, a, a somber ending, not necessarily a down ending, but somewhat of a somber ending. I think, yeah, 
Um, given the way that modern military first-person shooter video games tend to handle their stories, this probably would have worked well in that regard. So maybe someone who's big into that sort of genre of games will be more likely to get into this than someone who is expecting a traditional Star Wars novel. If you go into it thinking this is, you know, Call of Duty Solist Edition, <laughs> that maybe this is the thing that'll draw those people in. Again, it's just, it's just not a Star Wars book that's going to be for everybody because it is such a drastic tonal shift from what we've tended to see. And I'm not saying that the tonal shift is bad. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And people knew I was going to mention this, I'm sure. Uh, back in the late 90s, uh, I was working with a team, uh, Clear Concrete Productions, Devin Reed and others, Christopher Newsom, on a fan film that never actually got finished because a lot of the original footage got deleted. It was just gone, uh, called Prelude to Hope. While we were working on that, expecting that film to eventually get out, we were going to do a second fan film once it was done that was going to be a gritty war drama, realities of war, people dying, Star Wars fan film called Second Strike. It never got made because Prelude to Hope never got done, so we turned Second Strike into the first ever serious, i.e. non-parody, Star Wars fan-made audio drama to be released online. That we know of at all. There were ones previously that were offline stuff and like contests and things like that, but actually releasing one online was a new thing at the time. And so Second Strike is actually still out there. You go to StarWarsFanWorks.com, you can find Second Strike under the audio drama section. We really felt at the time that Star Wars needed the darker realities of war because it had played so fast and loose with it before that the closest we ever got was like the X-Wing novels. And even then, it wasn't, you know, the action on the ground and the meat grinder type of thing and the human frailty kind of thing because it was mostly the intrigue and the starfighter combat and such and people dying that way mm -hmm. and then i was very glad to see by the time that we finally got that done and out december 25th of a, a you know christmas day of 2002 and then the next year for the other two parts that by then we had started to see star wars dip in that direction with the clone war stuff so showing the realities of war not necessarily a bad thing for star wars but it's going to be something that is so different than much more the fantasy, you know, the, the fun, more lighthearted type of adventures that you get with the Star Wars films so far. You know, we don't know about Rogue One yet, but probably it's going to be closer to this. That I have a feeling there, there are probably people out there saying, this isn't my Star Wars. This isn't what Star Wars is supposed to be. Uh, and I wonder if that opinion is going to change once we have Rogue One. Whether that is going to be what makes people say, oh, Star Wars can be that. And this is fine. I hope so. Because you had a lot of people out there who were still saying, I don't like the early Clone Wars stuff before the cartoon, or I didn't like the Jedi Order because of how dark it got. That's not Star Wars. Even though for Legends, that's where Star Wars went and expanded into, they still think that's not my Star Wars. Well, what is? No, well put. I mean, that is, I, I'm one, I like a little dark, you know? I mean, it doesn't have to always be dark, but I think that that market needs to, you know, have some material thrown their direction every now and again. I, I've always said I'm a big fan of the New Jedi Order. It was the feeling of anything could happen, you know? And I think that that's something about this story that, you know, when it is characters that are brand new, you aren't tied to them very well. And the ones that you get tied to, you don't know if they're going to be there in the next page. So mm -hmm. like, it, it does work in that regard. But I keep wanting, I want to come back to Namir and Gadron and see where these characters go from here, what they do with Twilight Company. I would love to see a bigger backdrop told. Uh, you know, and when we get into the spoiler part, you know, there's a part that I'm going to talk about that, that really sets things up. But it's that excitement, that dark angle that I'm really looking forward to. And, and, and you bring up a great ponder, you know. I mean, once Rogue One comes out, will the shift in our perception of what should and should not be a Star Wars film, will it evolve with that? I would like to say yes. I want to say, you know, we're a fandom that moves and, and rolls with the changes. I mean, sometimes we, we roll kicking and screaming, but we tend to roll for the most part. So let's see how that rolls. Anything else from you before we uh, jump into spoilers, my man? I think I'm good. Although I would add, I guess, one thing, which is you said, you know, that, you know, wanting to see where, where things go and seeing these characters play out and whatnot and, and not knowing because these are new characters who's going to survive. I got to be honest with this book. I thought more people were going to die than did, which is saying a lot because a lot of people died. <laughs> uh, I, I expected this to be one of those books that ends with somebody else having to tell the story looking back on it because everybody's dead, you know, that kind of thing. So it's definitely an interesting thing where you've got characters whose fates are unknown because then you can have some actual sense of peril as opposed to it being, oh, look, Luke is supposed to be in peril, but we know he lives 
why should we care type of, of scenarios. But yeah, beyond that, I'm good for spoilers now. Okay. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go. On another adventure, Beyond the Films. So this is a, kind of a tough one to summarize, but in general, the general gist of what you got is that you have Hazram Namir. He is a sergeant with Twilight Company, which is a rebel outfit during the middle of this mid-rim retreat that's happening. It starts about a month or so, give or take, before the Empire Strikes Back, winds up going till a couple of weeks after the film. And we see a little bit through flashbacks of his background, knowing that he grew up on Crucible. He basically was a warrior from a very young age for all these different factions over time because the world is just constantly in warfare. And he's bouncing from one group to another, different names he's under, until he finally joined a Twilight Company and fought the bigger war out there against the Empire. While they're on one of their missions... They receive a call or receive intel that supposedly says there are some rebels who are needing rescue, but in truth it's not. It's actually a ploy to get them to the governor's residence where they meet very Chalice, who is this woman uh, who has been working for the Empire, sort of pressed into service. She really doesn't want to be. She would rather be an artist, and now she wants to defect. She's like, look, I know all kinds of information about the logistics of the Empire, how they work, where their supply lines run, and things like that. I could be a great value to you if you take me in and make me one of yours and protect me then you know what? Fine, I'll turn that over to you. So she's like a defector, but she's making a bargain in the process of doing this. Uh, she gets brought back. We meet the members of the team, uh, including uh, Mitya Evan, a.k.a. Howling Mad, a.k.a. Howl, who is the official leader of Twilight Company. And they're not quite sure what to do with this woman's information. They work together a little bit to try to make plans for the future. Eventually, it does wind up being something that the Alliance leadership is going to have to figure out. So uh, Hazram, as her guard, essentially, after saving her life at one point, and her uh, and Howl wind up with a small group that goes actually to Hoth to meet with the rebel leadership. Only, of course, they're caught up in the Battle of Hoth itself. Things go bad, and they have to get the heck out of there. Meanwhile, Twilight Company is still out there on its main ship, the Thunderstrike, which winds up... They're chased for a little while. They wind up running afoul of uh, some Imperials. They wind up clashing with some Imperials who have staged, basically, a supposed ship in need of rescue for the rebels when it's really the Imperials who are aboard that wind up uh, uh, striking like a Trojan horse. Basically, things get bad on their end as well until the group is finally able to come back together while being pursued by the Imperial Star Destroyer Herald with Tabor Saitaron, a retired military guy who was a teacher for a while who got pressed back into service, and Prelate Verge, who is this sycophantic, Palpatine-worshipping, young Imperial Ruling Council lunatic uh, with him, and they have to figure out what their next step is going to be, because by that point, uh, after everything that happened on Hoth and whatnot, uh, Howl is dead, which leaves really Hazrem in charge of Twilight Company and what they do next, and Avery had been planning this massive, massive gambit to go to all these different locations and cut off different supply lines for the Empire, and really sort of put the crush on them, but by the time that's in motion to a degree, the Imperials are wise to it, the Thunderstrike winds up crashing after being attacked, and they wind up stuck on Sullust. And their decision is that, you know what, instead of trying to do this bigger plan that really can't be done anymore and trying to figure out a way to do that, let's help the people on Sullust and liberate them. And you get almost like a trench warfare type of feel for a little while as they're trying to do that. Working with the locals, we see uh, Nyende and her perception as being a stormtrooper while this kind of stuff is going on, almost being killed by a rebel bombing that is essentially a terrorist attack, but they would say a freedom fighter type attack. Until finally we see a lot of people dead, Sullust liberated, and the war basically just still going on for these characters who simply have their next uh, step in the war to take, whereas Iveri has managed to basically get Saitaron to sort of let her go so she can go off and actually become an artist, and Saitaron has finally got sick of Verge's crap and has just shot the guy um, so that he is out of play as a villain. It's an odd one. Lots of twists and turns. Way more detail than anything I could give here. Just check out the Star Wars Timeline Gold's new release, StarWarsFanWars.com slash Timeline. Do a search uh, for Twilight Company in parentheses just Twilight Company in parentheses, and it'll jump you to each of the different summary segments because there are a lot of bits and pieces as this jumps around a little bit in time and interweaves with The Empire Strikes Back. But suffice to say, 
Very dark, but that is the general backbone of the tale. Yeah, and I, I really dug the little plots. One thing I, I think needs to be pointed out, and you know, I took a lot of notes for this one. I, a lot of little things jumped out, little tiny ponders. But one that really jumped out, and I think it's important to point out, Chalice is basically Count Vidian's replacement, a tie-in to A New Dawn. You know, mm-hmm. Count Vidian was the guy that knew where everything was. He was the military's kind of like uh, warehouse guy, strategist, uh, you know, knew, knew where the supply lines were going and coming and all that stuff. So that, that really worked. Another angle I really liked was that the Thunderstrike was very reminiscent to the Nightcaller from Race Squadron. Uh, you know, you get this feeling at times where Wedge, you know, Namir is Wedge character. Uh, I, I dug the way that they played up the brig. Uh, the brig was this great, built, brilliant little thing where they could jettison people out into outer space at any time. And while Micah, he didn't, you know, General Howell, he didn't believe in actually using it. Namir's like, well, we won't tell the prisoners that. <laughs> He's just like, we're going to let them think that we're going to jettison at any time. There were really cool moments like that that I really got a kick out of. And I think the thing that really summarizes it for me is in page 17 in the first chapter, uh, it goes, 18 months earlier, the Rebel Alliance 61st Mobile Infantry, commonly known as Twilight Company, had joined the push into the galactic mid-rim. The operation was among the largest the Rebellion had ever fielded against the Empire, involving thousands of starships, hundreds of battle groups, and dozens of worlds. In the wake of the Rebellion's victory against the Empire's planet-burning Death Star battle station, High Command had believed the time was right to move from the fringes of Imperial territory towards its population centers. Twilight Company had fought in the factory deserts of Perosa Ged and taken the Dukla Palace of Bemer. It had established beachheads on the rebel hover tanks and erected bases from tarps and sheet metal. Namir had seen soldiers lose limb and go weeks without proper treatment. He'd trained teams to conduct makeshift bayonets when blaster power packs ran low. He'd set fire to cities and watched the Empire do the same. He'd left friends behind on broken worlds knowing he'd never see them again. On planet after planet, Twilight had fought. Battles were won and battles were lost, and Namir stopped keeping score. Twilight remained at the Rebellion's vanguard, forging ahead of the bulk of the Armada, until word came down from High Command nine months in. The fleet was overextended. There was to be no further advance, only defense of the newly claimed territories. Not long after that, the retreat began. Twilight Company had become the rear guard of a massive withdrawal. It had deployed to worlds it had helped capture mere months earlier and evacuated the bases it had built. It extracted the rebellion's heroes and generals and pointed the way home. It marched over the graves of its own dead soldiers. Some of the company lost hope. Some became angry. No one wanted to go back. And for me, I think that's like the heart of the soldier's point of view in this. I mean, these guys were the ones that were leading the push. You know, I mean, it's like being on an undefeated football team and you're almost halfway through the season. It's looking real good. And then all of a sudden you just you're losing by one point, by one point, by one point, by one point. And you just that feeling of dejectedness that's coming down on them. I just that felt like that little part really set so much into motion for this book for me. Uh, little things also that jump out, we find out that even 13 years after the Clone Wars, that the Empire is still using clones to a degree. Now, granted, this could be the, the kid's perception, you know, only remembering back to the Clone Wars and not actually in the Empire's service. But it's cool that we're seeing points of view kind of coming up. We're still wondering, you know, what's going on with the clones. We've seen representations in other books where there are certain clones, certain commanders and stuff still functioning in the Empire. So it's kind of cool to see those little tie-ins. I really get a kick out of that. There was a clubhouse that was in the ship uh, that they were using it as their own little free space. It was a crawl space converted for the crew. It was invite only. Uh, it had like a employee of the month kind of feel to it, if you ever watched that movie. Ajax, I liked how he came from the uh, 32nd Infantry. He was one of five survivors of the Bleeding Roughnecks. He still wore the badge little things like that you know that there weren't much nate pointed out earlier you know very little disposition on a lot of the side characters but there were little things like that you know they came up really quick really fast and bam they were over and done with let's see twilight company they were sent in to defend the coyote for a month while they were uh, defenseless during their mating season i thought that was an interesting twist uh you know a decent enough reason to lend aid since the coyote are hindering the empire but the mating wait, wait. if they're gonna be attacked during their mating season because they are defenseless. Does that mean that they were quite literally fucked? (laughs) 
Oh my lord, I hadn't thought of that. I'm sure Michael is going to have to bleep that, but surely people understand oh, what I was getting at there. Oh, they are so fracked. Oh, oh, gosh. No, I hadn't thought about that, but it, it was a weird thing when I was reading it. And had I thought about that, I probably would have taken a lot more joy in that scene. It was just a really odd scene. Oh my god, that's great. I think that's, that the part that you read there is an important bit of this. I think that a lot of what we get out of this, it's... Again, it's, what does good sci-fi do? Hopefully it looks at something in our world, but does it in a way that puts it in a science fiction context so that a lot of the, the things that anger us are removed. Like someday there will be, if there's not one already, a sci-fi story that mirrors this year's election and candidates doing things very much like Trump and very much like Clinton. But they won't call them Clinton or Trump or Democrats or Republicans and so forth. It may not even be on Earth. And in doing so, will allow us to examine the insanity of the last, what, year, give or take, in a way that lets people come together and talk about it and say, well, this is interesting. Or this, you know, this worked here, this worked there, that kind of thing. As opposed to it just being, you don't like Trump, you must die. You don't like Clinton, you must die. And all this divisiveness. Whereas in this case, it sort of takes again, takes war out of the modern real-life context and gives us interesting ways to think about it, which you can then apply later in a more generic fashion as an allegory to real life. So you take something like that retreat that you mentioned, that's huge. I mean, I know people who are veterans who are incredibly frustrated and have been over the last few years because they fought and bled, and the people that they fought with in many cases died. Friends, superiors, people died in order to, for instance, take certain places in Iraq from the insurgency that was controlling it. And then we get a change of commander-in-chief, a change of strategy, a change of policy, and as we essentially pull back, the bad guys manage to take it all over again. Only at this point, they've sort of morphed and transformed into ISIS. And now we've got troops going back in to take territory back that we already fought and died for because we didn't hold it. There's a lot of frustration. And in a lot of ways, in an ongoing long-term struggle, you're going to see that. You're going to see territory get taken at high cost, get lost, have to retreat from it, and then eventually, if you want the same strategic goal again, you're going to have to somehow take it back. And there's the question of, well, how do you look at that from a standpoint of cost? Is it worth it to take it once only to have to retake it again? Was the sacrifice of those people taking it before, was it in vain because you lost it and had to come back to it? It's a lot like, for if you're having a hard time thinking of that in real-world terms, take the Star Wars angle where people were saying the fact that the Empire is able to come back with Thrawn or, or the Palpatine even came back in Dark Empire in Legends, it all just undermined Luke's struggle because all the things that happened in the classic trilogy didn't actually officially end the war. The struggles kept going kind of thing. And that part that you read is a big part of sort of pinning that down. I would say the same thing with what you were saying about the, uh, with Hazram when he's young and his way of thinking about the Imperial soldiers versus clones and that sort of thing. Um, the idea of ignorance. They do a really good job, or they, Alexander Free does a really good job in this story of giving us the ignorance of someone whose only frame of reference is their own situation. Mm hmm uh, he has no idea about the broader galaxy and, and the conflict going on around them. No idea about what other worlds are like. No idea about how his planet fits into the greater scheme of things. Only what he sees in front of him on that planet. And to him, that's all that there is. You know, it's it, we, we do that as people. We get very myopic into our own situation, our own life, our own town, our own country, whatever, that causes us not to see the big picture. And the more embroiled you are in the situation in your own place, the more chaotic it is, the less likely it is you're going to see that bigger picture outside, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that the little picture isn't important. It's especially important to you, Yeah. but that there's a, there's a level of context that gets missing in some situations. You mentioned the little character moments. Uh, Roach is an interesting character. It's this girl who claims to be in her about 20. She's actually probably more like 16 when she joins, and it turns out that she was a spice addict. And she quit cold turkey when she joined Twilight Company. We see her going through withdrawals a little bit. We don't get to really see more of the character. She's one of the few that get a little more attention, but not nearly enough to really make us care when she eventually, we find out that she died. But again, another thing that's interesting, giving us sort of that angle of the drug withdrawal. We've seen people who were spice addicts and what it does to them while they're addicts and how it affects their reputation. But seeing withdrawals and what happens over time with that, we got to see. Uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like this story 
if we were going to try to describe the tone in a sci-fi term, I would say that it's a lot like Battlestar Galactica. Okay, yeah. But I would say that it probably leans more towards Battlestar Galactica once they settle on New Caprica and it winds up that it was all a trap, basically, and you see them having to sort of fight to survive and get out of the muck and get back into space. It's Battlestar Galactica in its tone and its feel, and you can sort of imagine the ship like that and the soldiers like that. But once they get on the ground into the thick of things, it really feels much more like that even darker Galactica slump or, or chunk of time that they go into. Well, there was some great moments where, where you're in the mirror and he's walking around on the ship and they're in the middle of a space battle and all of Twilight Company is like hunkering down in corners because there's nothing for them to do but get out of the way. Exactly, yeah. We also see another, you had mentioned it too, it was Namir. He's not the smartest guy, and that's okay. You know, he bristles at the thought of the bridge and the fact that those operations are above his head. I, I thought that was a really interesting point of view, and like you described it, it was great to see. But I liked that about Namir was he was kind of like the country bumpkin. You know, even though he was so uneducated on so many things when it came to war, he was probably the youngest of all of them and been fighting for the longest. So it's like he had a lot of experience in certain things, but not other things. Like he knew his way around weapons he knew his way around training people infantry movements things like that but when it came to the bigger picture and, and how to operate the machinery and stuff of that nature totally over his head another thing that was kind of cool is when we get to hoth it's before the battle and we learned that they actually when the empire shows up that was all planned they had it was planned k10 and it was a plan for when the Empire showed up, and they actually had initiated the plan before the Empire got there. Like, they were in the process of evacuating. So Chalice using her name all the time in her code seemed really stupid to me. Like, you would think, like, she'd be red-flagged or something. Like, why would, why would you be using your stuff within that first week? Like, maybe in the first, like, you know, you, you're walking out of the base, they haven't figured it out, but once you've left the planet, the Empire knows you're in there captured, like, that, I would think that would be a time to just click a little box with her name and lock her out of everything. Like, I, that was something that really threw me off. And she also hadn't picked up on Namir being from, quote, one of those old Tionese colonial backwaters, unquote. And I thought that was pretty cool that they kept the uh, the Tion cluster in there. Uh, you know, one of those little things, I'm... We've always been huge Legends fans, so anytime little things like that come over, I get excited. I'm like, oh, sweet. I wonder if there's any, you know, any of the old legend stories are, are considered somewhat canon to this point. Not saying that those stories are, but elements of them, I wonder how much of it is going to come over. Because if I remember right, the Tion sector was a home of a huge kind of civil war of its own. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff done with that, especially in the Essential Atlas, where it added a lot of background to that region that didn't already exist, and then you had the stuff that showed up in some of the really, really early Del Rey books. So, yeah, it's kind of cool to see that mentioned. I mean, they did say that they weren't necessarily going to be sort of reinventing the wheel, so a lot of things about the galaxy would be the same or at least similar in terms of names and, and things that could be referenced and whatnot. Uh, though I will say, while it's got some of those references, I mean, the fact that they really heavily changed what was happening on Sullust to make this the liberation of the planet... I don't know. There's part of me that says, boy, maybe they should have been coordinating with Fantasy Flight a little bit on that because this would have been being developed in parallel to what was being developed. I think it was for Strongholds of Resistance. I forget which book it was in. But, I mean, they wound up with basically the Legends version being released right after this, which has got to have confused people. Um, that just goes, again, I think, to show that I mean, when we talk about the story group and trying to keep things uh, all fitting together... It's not nearly as seamless a process as it seems like. It's not like they're looking at every word of everything and acting as final arbiters in that sense. Uh, and especially when it comes to the games, that doesn't really seem to be the case. So, you know, sort of a take it or leave it type of thing. I mean, it just goes to show that it's not quite, you know, what we necessarily expect all the time. I and mean, kind of like, you know, what they had with Pablo Hidalgo and the whole thing recently on Twitter with, uh, you know, ABY, BBY. It's not really meant to be an in-universe thing because why would they specifically say Battle of Yavin is the big deal? But it gave us a frame of reference to use as readers and so on and so on. Yeah. I like in page uh, 138, they paint a picture of how the rebels are starting to sustain heavy damage to the ships. The fleets are all being hunted. That's where Verge comes into play and stuff. We kind of get more of what's going on with that side. Verge was a character that I I like that I didn't care for him. Um, you know, and then we got Gallius Rax, who seems to be 
a similar version of this type of character? Like, like maybe they were raised in the same schooling inside the Empire once Palpatine brought them under his wing kind of thing? Like, you know, with Gallius, there's, there's this whole aspect of, you know, the next generation. Well, it's very prevalent with, with Verge. I mean, you know, he is that next generation. He is the total psychopath. The guy has just completely lost it in the creepiest of ways. Like, I, there's just something about him that just, I don't know, man. I just, I love to hate him. So another thing about the the Battle of Hoth that I thought was a cool twist was when we see the first transport get away, there's a moment where you're like, oh my god, Chalice is on the transport. Like, I thought that was like really cool the way they played it, because for a moment there, I'm thinking, wow, what I thought of The Empire Strikes Back just shifted a little bit. Not much, but a little. And then we find out she wasn't actually on the ship, which was also another cool little twist that I didn't see coming. I don't know about you. I don't know if you enjoyed that at all. Yeah. I mean, again, it's nice to see how they sort of interweave with what we we knew. I think I was kind of expecting that she wasn't on the ship, but to have it be, you know, the, the first transport is away. Oh, that's what she was supposed to be on. Gives us something else to be thinking about when we see that in Empire. Yeah. Another another two chapters that were fun was 18 and 19, where we see a confrontation by Vader. Namir barely escapes. It gives you a, a great soldier point of view after having you know, command, having it smashed, you got your commanders lost, the fleet shattered. For me, that was a total damn son two chapters. Like, that was the low point of everything for me was during those two chapters. I was just like, are you kidding me? I mean, chapter 19, you know, you see that young imp guy, uh, he's going to make an example of the Twilight Company if they don't turn in Chalice. But she ain't there. I'm just like, oh, dude, they are so screwed right now. Like, how is this going to work out? Like, there were a couple moments where they just really ramped it up. And I, I got a kick out of those moments, man. The desolate look for Twilight Company and the crew of the Thunderstrike when the ship crashes. I'm just like, that moment alone when the ship goes down, I'm just like, this is it. I, I at that point, I didn't think the Twilight Company was going to make it out of the book. I was just like, they're, they're done. They're going to be like the Roughnecks all over again. Yeah, yeah, I definitely thought that they were going to wind up all dead by the end, and maybe it's just a very somehow surviving as a way of showing them getting at least a small victory, maybe her looking back on what happened to them. But no, they managed to get through, and we wind up with some slight changes of circumstance, but the war just sort of keeps on going, which fits real life. True, which which is also the other angle. I mean, Chalice at first she wants to have them go up against Quat. You know, they're going to take out the shipyards there at Quat, and everything's this big push towards that. And you're just like, okay, this you know this is going to be cool. We're going to see these guys you know deliver a major strike. And and I thought that was going to be the, the way it was going to go. And then we shift, and it, they decide to not do that. They go to Solist instead, and it all becomes basically the liberation of Solist. And I thought that that worked because, like, while Quat would have been a, a huge military victory for them, I feel like saving Solist was more of a victory of the minds and the souls of the people of the galaxy. That was something the, the rebellion really needed to do more. Uh, you know, follow something like that up with a military strike. You know, that adds to the sense of, of you know, hey, we're a growing force. But I think choosing to save the people versus just, you know, impacting the Empire's ability to build more ships, I think that that does more for them in the aspect of recruiting. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about was the way that they would go about recruiting. You know, the the Rebellion, they didn't like to go and recruit from places that were just attacked. But that was actually something that Twilight Company did specifically. And that was something that once Micah was gone, when Micah Vaughn, General Howell, was gone and out of the picture, Nemir, he kept that going. You know, that was a tradition that he felt needed to continue. And I like the way that they played that up as well. Uh, you know, I think for me, that was the thing I really enjoyed the most was getting that point of view, that ground soldier point of view, the, the rank and file getting to see where they're at. And I think Namir, he, he served the best point because he gave you the idea of both worlds. Like he's like a high up lieutenant, you know, he's training people, but he's not in command. But by the end of the book, he's forced into command. So now you're watching a regular rank and file guy making the choices and the decisions that he didn't understand three or four chapters before. And now he's understanding how little he understood. And, and he's like trying to catch up. And there was this, 
interesting relationship between him and Chalice that plays out throughout the book. You know, at first, like, there's this jealousy about how Chalice has worked her way up to a point where she's like, uh, Mike is number two, you know, like, he's leaning, General Howell's leaning on Chalice so much that it's really pissing off Namir. He doesn't understand why. But then once he starts to get to know her more, he starts to understand why. But at the same time, it raises his level of distrust for her. So, like, he's got this sense of loathing and admiration for her that, that runs parallel the whole time. And you're like, which is going to win out? You know, is he going to is he going to fall for her or is he going to just shoot her in the back? Like, I I never really quite felt secure in how he felt about her all the way through the book and i like the way they played that out through their interactions between those two yeah he's one of those characters that kind of plays things close to the chest so you're never quite certain and it depends on who he's talking to uh, we don't really get inside his head nearly as much as we otherwise would now you're saying micah is that the way it was said in the audiobook yeah they were calling him micah yvonne in the book huh. yeah okay because i was thinking it says it's it seemed as though they were leaning towards trying to do some type of inclusive naming within this book because m-i-c-h-a to me didn't sound like micah it sounded like either Micha or misha and i was thinking that maybe that's sort of an eastern european thing because in real life misha is mike Basically, in Russian, you have Michael and Mikhail, and then short for Michael over here is Mike. Short for Mikhail is Misha, just like short for Stephen or yeah, Stefan or whatever in Russia would be Sasha as opposed to Steve. So I was thinking maybe it was that. But I guess the biggest one in that note is Hazrem. Do you feel like, and this is because it hit me immediately on starting to read this book, going, huh, that is the first demonstrably obviously Middle Eastern-inspired name that I could think of in Star Wars, at least off the top of my head. Hazram Namir has a definite sound like someone you would meet on the battlefield, either as an ally of ours or an enemy of ours, depending on, you know, which side, in Iraq or Afghanistan and so forth. It sounds like a Middle Eastern descent name, which we don't see much in Star Wars. Now, they don't describe him necessarily that way, except maybe describing a little bit more like he seems a little bit leaning towards Persian in the way they describe him ethnically in the book. But do you think that was just, this name sounds good for the character, or that was a purposeful decision to try to give us characters that don't sound like they're either super spacey and couldn't fit any, you know, real world culture or a name that sounds very Caucasian. I, you know, I want to say it's diversity angle. I mean, when you look at the cover of the book, you know, you see Gadrin, you see Roach, and I'm assuming that that's Namir right there in the front with his gun pointed. He does have a very Persian-like look to the character in that regard. You're right, though. He's not described that way. Just his name really is the one thing that stands out. I, I honestly, I didn't put that much thought into it. I mean, if that's actually him on the cover, I want to say then, yeah, they probably had that planned. If not, if that's just some generic trooper on the cover, well, then it's probably just a, a random circumstance that happened to be coincidental. Okay. I mean, I think it's a cool sounding name. Yeah. It's just, it's cool sounding, but distinctly to our ears, you know, living on modern day Earth, it certainly doesn't sound like most Star Wars name sounds. It sounds like it has a specific Earth connection. And maybe it's somebody, you know, maybe it's named after somebody that uh, Alexander Freed knows or something. You know, a lot of times those Tuckerisms slip into books, but I don't know. I just thought that was something that, that's something that kind of struck me as interesting when reading it just from a modern political sociological standpoint. And I don't think I've ever heard an answer on it. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't either. That's something like, hey, Mr. Freed, if you're listening to this, you know, drop us a little line or something. We want to know. Uh, you know, another one too, that, that I thought was an interesting angle was Nine Nub. You know, we see him showing up and we get kind of more of a backstory for the character because at this point we haven't really seen him in the films. You know, we, we see him with, with Lando Calrissian flying the Falcon. And I think, you know, the general assumption was that we always assumed he was a pilot. And it turns out he really does a lot more on the ground leading his own cell. Like, he's more an actual rebel leader in the, the guise of Bail Organa than, than we would have thought Typically, I mean, he's running his own cell, running from the ground. Uh, you know, he's more of a rank and file soldier than I ever thought. So uh, I thought that was well, an interesting angle. And, it- and he shows up more, too, because, you know, we didn't see him much in Legends. 
But here, he's in this book. He's in Moving Target. He's in the Princess Leia comic, you know, with That's Not Leia and all that stuff. He shows up in The Force Awakens, and that means he shows up in some of the ancillary materials to that. He is a much bigger player in general in canon than he ever was in Legends. Well, it made me stop and think about in Return of the Jedi. You know, I mean, I always thought he was a co-pilot. Now I realize he's actually more of a leader of the rebellion. Do you think he might have been sent along with Lando because they just didn't trust Lando? He's the babysitter. Basically. I mean, that's that's what I started to think of. I was like, oh my god, that's brilliant! Like, you know, yeah, they heard what I did at Tanab, but what did you do at Tanab? Maybe you blew up half of the ships on your own side when you did it. Like, maybe you won, but it wasn't the best victory. Or like, hey, you know, no, maybe you should go with that Calrissian cat. I don't trust him to not just blow shit up in the middle of this. Like, <laughs> Those racist rebels. They wanted to put somebody in charge, but they couldn't put Nine Numb with his actual track record in charge. No, he's going to be second to Lando because Lando's a human. <laughs> yeah. Another character that, that got very little in, in the area of development was uh charmer uh you know charmer for the most part he stuttered uh had a lot of scars and and i think the scars were kind of part of why he was nicknamed charmer Uh, i i just when he passed away like there wasn't much to him but i remember being kind of bummed i was like damn man i was hoping he'd make it out yeah i mean it sort of like i'm kind of like oh he's the next one to die but at least it was somebody that we knew i i feel like if i can sit back and say that there were clones aside from rex in the Clone Wars cartoon series that I felt more for when they died than anyone in this book. I I mean, talking about the emotional impact of any of the deaths of these characters is almost a non-issue, you know, because in my case, it just really wasn't there. And maybe it was because I was reading it rather than listening to the audiobook, and the audiobook allowed uh, the, the narrator to give personality to characters who barely had any. But reading it on the page... You know, this guy could have been described in two bullet points. Your description there of he's called Charmer and he had the scars and stuff and he's a veteran. And that's it. That's all we know, really. <laughs> that's Charmer. Please care because we named him in the book. Well, no, giving him a name and a couple of bullet points doesn't make me care. Do something with the character that makes me care. Yeah. One last thing I want to touch on before I'm, I'm pretty much out of things was uh, we see in the book... The 61st, the Twilight Company patch, the patch that they wear on the shoulder of their uniform, which we also see on the cover. I thought that was really cool. I know that, that uh, Delray made some of the patches up. They, uh, I don't remember if it was uh, New York Comic Con or San Diego Comic Con. Whenever this book rolled out, some of the patches were given out. I thought that was really cool. Kind of hope that they do more of those kind of things. You know, uh, when Legends was cut off and it's no longer expanded universe, it's Legends. We had things like, you know, the Jedi Path, the Sith Holocron, the Mandalorian, the uh, Imperial Handbook, which actually the Imperial Handbook came after the Legends Divide, but it actually fell into the Legends camp. But those in-universe things, like, I, I hope that they continue to do those things and offer those kind of products for us. Uh, you know, one of the things I would love to see would be, like, a watch, you know, like a watch that has an in-universe Star Wars look, like some clothesline and things of that nature that they offer us, the consumers, so we can feel like it. I know it. So... Uh, just recently, when talking about the the purchase by Hot Topic, uh, Ashley Eckstein was talking about the future for her universe and leaning towards actually having some male clothes in the line, Ooh. too, and that sort of thing. So for men and women, give us basically a jacket, a coat, that looks like it's for a member of the squad, but making one of those reversible coats. So like on one side, it looks like you're wearing the gear and it's got the patches. On the other side, you flip it around, you can put the hood up and zip it closed and it's a body bag. <laughs> and that'd be appropriate. Oh, I like, well, the body bag's a great one. I was thinking, looking at the cover, you know, having it where it's one side, it's like a Hoth gear and you flip it around on the other side, it's like an indoor gear kind of thing where it's the same uniform, but just different, you know, no, different no, environment background. No, because <laughs> if you look at Battlefront, As we well know from Leia's wardrobe in the Battlefront game, you can wear Hoth clothes anywhere, even on Tatooine. True. (laughs) Space physics. Give us some new character models, damn it! 
That's like Anakin wasn't that cold when he was up in space. <laughs> so last thing I want to touch on real quick is the cover here. Uh, it's just a, a great little shot from Hoth. Uh, you know, you got the AT-ATs, the ATSTs all up on him. You got a couple of the uh, rebel troopers with jetpacks launching up. You've got Gadron. I believe it's Namir and Roach as they're all rushing off. You get a great shot of the big uh, anti-gun that they, you watch them launch up to get the transport safe. We shot that eight. We shot the Star Destroyer. Woo, blue lights, all that. Uh, I'm assuming it must be an ion cannon. <laughs> little play on uh, play on we talk clones there, ion cannon. But yeah, I, I really I just I liked it. I thought it was really cool action adventure, nice cover, not much going on to it. In the world of new canon books where they're giving you covers with reversible things and stuff like that, I kind of just wish they would have put the patch in the book. I mean, that's about my only complaint really when it comes to that. Yeah, I thought the cover looked pretty cool, but I, I don't know. Because of what the cover is and what the story is, it took me a long time to even realize, hey, that's Gadrin on the cover. Hey, this might actually be meant to be Twilight Company themselves on the cover. It feels to me like a really nice, but really, really generic Star Wars battle shot, when I guess it's really not meant to be. I guess it's meant to be Twilight Company that we're seeing, but... It doesn't scream that. And I'm looking at the front, and I'm one, the, the guy in the front, I'm wondering, is it supposed to be Hazram? Is it supposed to be Charmer or whatever? Because if that is Hazram, I was picturing him much differently. And man, you know, if this book was designed to give us the impression that war is ugly, they couldn't have personified it better on the cover with Hazram, if that's who that is, being ugly as hell. So, yeah, I mean, I like the cover, but at the same time, for whatever reason, it never really felt like it was... This, like, I mean, like, that's what, I mean, this is theoretically Hoth, right? That we're seeing in the image, but the whole team isn't ever on Hoth. So it's not like it's showing a scene out of the book. True. So I don't know. True. Namir, when he goes to Hoth, it's just him, Hal, and, and, and like three or, or so other members. Gadron wasn't on Hoth. Yeah, other members who are what you might call cannon father, right? Cannon fodder, cannon poodoo, because, right, that's how Potter, fodder apparently translates. But in this case, if you are a person created just for Battlefront Twilight Company so that you can die to progress the story of Twilight Company, which is a new story group canon book, does that make you cannon fodder with two ends in the middle? Or cannon fodder with one end in the middle? Or are you both? <laughs> I think that'd be a, that would have been a great subtitle for this. Don't even call it Battlefront Twilight Company. Call it Star Wars Twilight Company colon cannon fodder, C-A-N-O-N. <laughs> Nice. Uh, One last observation I have that I I enjoy. I haven't seen much of this since Karen Travis's books. Uh, At the beginning of each chapter, you would have a location, like chapter 31, Planet Solist, one day of the siege of Eritor. Uh, you know, and they would give you like so many days before, or so many days after of this, that, and the other thing. I got a kick out of that. I kind of missed that. And the other thing I miss. But that, may I say, as cool as that was. You know how much math I had to do to be able to actually fit this on the timeline and know where the hell this was taking place? Because it was like this many days before this event. Okay, here's the event. This many days after this event. Now we're going to completely change the frame of reference to days before and after this other event. And you got to kind of figure out based on what they're saying in the story where at one point they're like, well, the next day is such and such. It had been two days since, but now the reference in the opening thing has changed to a different thing. Or, oh, uh, it's the evacuation of Hoth, but the plan goes into effect before the actual evacuation and battle day. So figure out when that takes. It's both intriguing as a timeliner and frustrating that it's not just days before and after, say, the Battle of Hoth. It's all relative to what they're going through, but it means that the date references are constantly changing. Drove me nuts. Finally figured it out. Drove me nuts. I could see that driving you up a wall. Totally. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I, to me, there was just something about that that I really got a kick out of. I was like, yeah, you know, I miss that kind of stuff. <laughs> The other thing that I really, and I think I'm going to say this every single new canon novel that comes out, can we please, please, for the love of the maker, George Lucas himself, get the damn character list back at the beginning of the book? I don't even, just give me six freaking characters. That's all I need. I don't need 20. I just need a small list. That's it. Just come on. So I think uh, I think we pretty much had all we could say for the the little things. I I overall I really enjoyed the book. I I would love for them to come back, revisit some of these characters, Twilight Company themselves, give us some more stuff. Maybe jump five years into the future. Maybe push us a little closer to uh, you know 
episode seven, find out what's going on. If Twilight Company's still around, maybe find out that it's been gone for a long time and someone's reviving it. Uh, you know, I would love to know more about this company. I'd love to follow it. I like the history there. I that's something I'm intrigued in. Um, I think that that the potential there for more stories is huge. Uh, I think that this could be a great beginning chapter to its own Wraith Squadron-like story, just Twilight Company series. I think that that would be a a brilliant move on their part, and I think that as long as they don't do it, I think it does a disservice to this book. I think this book, it, it just it lacks thereof because it could be a great stepping stone for a pathway to greatness, or it could just be a, eh, it's all right book yeah it's one of those books that's going to be great for those who are into this type of story and want this type of story it's really not going to hit the mark at all for those who don't Uh, and it's much more about the atmosphere i think and the tone of the book in a lot of ways than it is about the actual story of the book it's it feels like it's a bunch of battles that in the grand scheme of things won't matter a lot and heroes who won't be remembered very well by the readers which in essence is what a lot of battles are and who a lot of soldiers are when looking at the big picture of a war uh, when we don't take the time to stop and look at the individual situations and the individual soldiers. So, again, I don't know if he managed to do all of this intentionally or if it was just a failure in characterizing enough of the characters enough that we cared about them. But either way, it winds up driving home the tone, definitely. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that will ever see any of these characters again or that hey the next battlefront might have a freaking story or maybe the next battlefront books about a different company altogether i mean i'd be down for that battlefront apple (laughs) not what you meant by different company i don't think so no what are the odds that i'll have my voice by the next time we record jesus man i feel like i'm like so lost force chokes can do that true oh we didn't even talk about the force choke the chalice took oh yeah she took one to the throat what are you doing to Lord Vader? <laughs> she took one to the throat, and we're not even talking about the Trump campaign right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, ouch. <laughs>